Good morning. For the last three weeks, we've been in this series called Bad Dads. We've been looking at dads in Scripture who totally blew it, but each of the dads we've looked at so far, though they totally blew it, they also had some really good redeeming qualities. Like Adam, for example, because of Adam's sin, all of us are guilty. We are born sinful and guilty, and there's nothing we can do to fix that. And yet, even after God brings the curse of death, Adam blesses Eve with a promise that she would be the mother of all living. And he speaks life in the face of death. Abraham was given this promise that he would be the father of many nations with descendants more numerous than the stars, and yet he lived in fear, and twice he gave his wife over to somebody else for fear of his own life, as if God was not faithful to his promises. And yet we celebrate Abraham for being a man who held to God's promises When God told him to sacrifice his son, he was willing to trust in even the most impossible situations. And God spared Isaac. We looked at David, who though God made him a promise that his descendants would sit on the throne forever, that David would be a great king, and though God gave him everything he could hope for, in his lust and his sinful desire, he took advantage of a woman And we saw his son do the same with lots of women. So far, these dads we've looked at have had some redeeming qualities in them. But today, the dad we're going to begin with, there's nothing redeeming about. In fact, it could be argued he's one of the worst kings and the worst people in all of Scripture, which is a pretty big claim. So we're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 16. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Bibles, it's going to be on page 403. Now, if you're not familiar with these books of the Bible, the the Kings, uh, 2 Samuel chronicles, or 1 and 2 Samuel chronicle the, the beginning of Israel with a king. See, all of God's people said, we want a king. And God said, I'll be your king. And they said, no, 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 we want a king like everybody else. And God says, I warn you, these kings will lead you astray and they will take advantage of you and things will not go well for you. And they said, that's fine, we want that anyway. And so in First and Second Samuel, you see the story of them getting a king and then the king turning away and then they get a new king and David unfortunately doesn't always do what's right and his sons seem to go further astray. And in second, or First and Second Kings and then Chronicles, what we get is a further uh, story of the kings leading the people of God away from God. And time and time again, if you read this, what you see is the nation of Israel actually seems nothing like the people of God at all and begins to act just like all the people around them who don't know God and his goodness and his promises. In fact, in First and Second Kings, we see that the nation of Israel splits into two different nations. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And what we see is both of them fall away from God over time. Israel much faster, but Judah then at a slower rate. And because they turn from God, God actually brings their enemies against them to conquer them and take them away into slavery. Here we are in chapter 16 with King Ahaz, king in Judah in the south, and this is how the Bible describes Ahaz. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramallah, Ahaz, the son of Yotham, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, 
and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. Or in some translations it says he made his son to pass through the fire according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This description of Ahaz, unfortunately, in Chronicles gets even worse. In every way, this man who was to rule the people and be their king, to lead them to follow after the Lord, walks not in the ways of the Lord, but in the ways of the people around them. In every way, he does things despicable, even to the point of sacrificing his own son to other gods. This is the one called to lead them. In chapter 16, it continues, and Ahaz doesn't just worship other gods and sacrifice his son to other gods. He actually takes the temple that had been built by Solomon, designed by God uh, through the tabernacle design, and then by David, as he said, let's make the tabernacle a physical building, this building where God promised his name would dwell forever. Ahaz takes and tears it apart, dismantles it, and gives away the various parts of the temple. He treats the God of Israel as so insignificant. He says, we don't actually need this temple. In Chronicles, it goes on to describe that not only does that, he takes the altar that God said, this is the place of sacrifice. Here you will be forgiven of all your sins. And he says, that altar is only for me. You guys have to sacrifice at a different altar one that I've created, where you're sacrificing to me. Ahaz, called to lead God's people, is perhaps the worst kind of dad you could ever imagine. He did not care in the slightest about truth or about God, just about himself. Now, as we've been talking about generational sin, we've been talking about that verse in Exodus where God says he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. So you might imagine if this dad was so terrible that he would sacrifice his own son to other gods. What might his son be like? We'll flip forward to chapter 18. Might be on the next page, maybe same page, depending on how your Bible's laid out. Chapter 18, Ahaz has a son who begins to reign after him. Chapter 18, verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Right off the bat, we get a picture that this son of Ahaz was different than him. Instead of doing what was right in his own eyes, what pleased himself, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
He sought, like David, to honor the Lord. If you remember, though David did some horrible things, he was considered a man after God's own heart because when he was confronted with his sin, he repented and said, God, let me do what is right by you. He wrote various psalms, like Psalm 119, How shall a young man keep his way pure by guarding his heart according to your word, O Lord? David, though he had sinned, turned to the Lord and was considered great. Hezekiah, though he had every reason to keep doing what he already knew, to follow in his father's footsteps and be just like his dad. Instead, he follows the Lord. In verse 4, it continues, He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. See, Hezekiah not only follows the ways of the Lord, he, as a leader of the people, leads them to do the same. To break down the idols and tear down the high places was to say the only one we will worship is Yahweh. We will honor His plan and we will do what He has asked of us. And if we're going to be His people, we will be all in as His people. See, for a long while, the kings of Israel were really content with kind of following God and kind of following the world. We see in Ahaz the culmination where he cares nothing about God and just doing what he pleases. But many of the kings leading up to him did a little bit of both. They honored the Lord. They did what was right but they kept the high places. There's this sense that for many, there's a a fear. I don't want to become too radical or committed or zealous. I'll let everybody to each their own do as you please. Whatever works for you is good for me. But not for Hezekiah. See, for Hezekiah, there is one option before him. I can serve the Lord or not. That's it. I think for many of us, when we look at our dads and our fathers, we can see great examples of men who served the Lord. And also, for many of us, when we look at our dads, we can see great examples of men who did not. Men who went their own way and did as they pleased, who were content with whatever seemed good for you was good for them, and they weren't really too convinced of one thing or the other. Hezekiah comes into a really difficult situation. See, he's the king in the south, and what's already happened is the north has been invaded by Assyria and conquered. Because of their sinfulness, they've already been scattered to all kinds of other places, taken away with hooks in their noses as slaves, all sorts of terrible as a result of their sin. And now, Hezekiah, what happens next is we see we see the same king of Assyria coming against him and coming against these people. Now, before we get there, here's what, how this continues in verse 5. Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. 
He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza from its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. See, Hezekiah, unlike his father, was committed that no matter what may happen, he would serve the Lord. And he's given this honor that there was no king like him prior or after him. By his faithfulness, even though he came from an incredibly unfaithful father, he does great things. He drives out the enemies of Judah. He pushes them back and says, this land will honor the Lord because we are his people. And now he faces pressure from Assyria. They come against him in the same way that they had come against Samaria. Now, if you don't know anything about ancient history, Assyria was absolutely brutal and vicious. Like they were known for inciting fear in their enemies, and they would take the bodies of their enemies, and they would stack them on spears in front of their cities. So when you came into their cities, you'd see all of these dead people stacked up, and you'd be reminded that could happen to you if you're not careful. When they would conquer a land, they would take everything and they would scatter everyone so that there's nothing left in the land to remind you of what you once had before. They would force you to learn their language and their religion to become like them in every way. And they were absolutely mighty as a military. And now Hezekiah is faced with having watched the rest of God's people get destroyed this same leader comes against him and begins to threaten him. In the rest of this chapter, the leader comes against him and begins to threaten, and at first Hezekiah tries a bribe. Look, let me just give you all the silver and gold that is in the temple, and we'll call that good. And so, as any good attacker will do, they take the silver and gold and then turn around and keep attacking. Now we're going to utterly destroy you. And Hezekiah is stuck in this difficult place. Do I honor the Lord and resist, or do I submit in the hopes that he will spare our people? In fact, the king of Assyria begins to send messengers specifically saying, if you bow down to me, if you turn from your ways, if you trust in me, I will keep you safe. And the messengers are speaking in the language of the people in Hebrew. And and the people actually respond, no, 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 don't speak to us in Hebrew. Speak in Aramaic so that the others don't know what we're saying. And the king of Assyria says, no, I want them all to hear what I'm about to do to them if they don't submit to me. So Hezekiah is stuck. What should he do to lead the people? How should he seek the Lord? Now what? Chapter 19, beginning in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sencherabeth, which he has sent to mock the living God. 
Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah is faced with this impossible situation. He has witnessed his enemy prevail time and time again. And when he attempted in his own strength to make it right, it only made things worse. And so now when he receives this threat, he takes his threat before the Lord and prays, God, you alone can rescue us. You alone can lead your people. You have destroyed all these other idols. You've allowed them to be destroyed because they're nothing. But God, would you be something for us today? I really love this story of Hezekiah and his prayer. Because I have to wonder, where did he learn to be faithful to God from a dad who was so evil? From a man who led the people in such idolatry, where did he learn what truth and goodness and faithfulness was? I began this series a few weeks ago by saying this is not an effort to blame our parents. See, to recognize generational sin and patterns and habits and things that come from family before us is not to say we are destined to be who they were. You and I have a choice before us. Will we follow in the footsteps of our fathers, doing at times what is evil before the Lord? Or will we follow the Lord even in the face of our enemies? Will we do what is difficult to be done that is not what is pleasing in our own eyes, but what is right with God? Will we live in such a way faithful, believing that God is able to do that all that he has promised. I believe Hezekiah's faith comes not from his dad, but just like your faith and my faith, from his heavenly father, from a God who in the midst of great evil would give faith to this man, in the midst of all kinds of challenges and reasons to not believe, would instill him with the ability to say, I trust in you, God. I have nothing else to hold to. So Hezekiah comes before God and prays, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And a remarkable thing happens. God hears Hezekiah's prayer, and he is faithful to do just that. And what happens next is in the middle of the night, it says, the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 men in the king's camp in Assyria. Imagine waking up in the morning and 185,000 soldiers around you are now dead overnight. Would you want to continue in battle or would you turn and flee? Sure enough, that's just what they did. When God shows up in the middle of the night and he conquers their enemy for them, they turn and they flee, and all of Jerusalem and Judah is spared from this great and mighty enemy. I've shared with you in the past, when you read the Old Testament and you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, recognize that the angel is different than an angel of the Lord. 
See, an angel refers to any one angel, but the angel of the Lord, every time he shows up, shows up singular, acting as God for the people. Scholars have said that the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus, the one who was and is and always will be, even before he was born, coming on behalf of God, doing what God did for his people. Hezekiah prays, and the angel of the Lord shows up and rescues them. Now what happens a little bit later, Hezekiah actually gets really sick. And he receives a message. This sickness will kill you. You are going to die. But there's a little problem for Hezekiah. As of this point, he doesn't have any children. If you remember, God promised to David that his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And now, as a descendant of David, he has no children and he's about to die. God's promises are potentially in danger. And Hezekiah, what, what happens next is he could cry out and say, God, but you promised. He could cry out and whine and complain, God, I don't want to die. I don't want this. Please heal me. But instead, he simply cries out to God, God, you are able. Bring healing. And he surrenders and trusts in God. And what happens in this story then is God actually, before the messenger who told him you're going to die, even finishes leaving the room, God speaks to the messenger and says, turn around and tell him, because he sought me, you will live. And God gives him an additional 15 years to live and to reign faithfully. Throughout this time, he restores much of the practice of worship. We read in Chronicles that Hezekiah not only honors God, but he brings the people of God back to following him faithfully. He leads others to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and he's one of the greatest kings they've ever seen because of it. But then comes this final person we're going to look at. See, Hezekiah was faithful and trusted in the Lord, and the Lord rescued him. Twice, one from an enemy on the outside and once from the enemy of sickness and death. Twice God rescued him in this great way. And then comes Hezekiah's son, a man named Manasseh. Have you ever heard of him? 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh, the son of this great and righteous king, was even more evil than his grandfather doing much of the same things his grandfather did just to an even greater extent. 
when it comes to generational sin, I love these three characters. Because the truth is, we are not bound to be who our fathers were. When you see things in your past, in your parents, and that have affected who you are today, this is not determining who you need to be. When they have been faithless or gone astray and their sin has hurt you, there is hope, like with Hezekiah. And at the same time, if we are not careful for every one of us, those who come after us, those who come in our legacy behind us, could walk away from everything that we have set for them. Hezekiah does all the right things, and for some reason that we're not actually given, his son instead chooses evil and does all the wrong things, just as his grandfather had. Manasseh does all sorts of evil and provokes the Lord to anger. He carved the image of Asherah that he had made and set it in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. It's this terrible story here. This story in which one man was faithful and his son just immediately turns it all around. But there's something really beautiful that comes a little bit later. In Second Chronicles... In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, if you want to turn there, we see another story in the layer of Manasseh's evil. Here comes this verse. God comes against Manasseh because of his evil. And then in verse 12, when he, that is when Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I love this ending of Manasseh's story. In every way, he was far more evil than his grandfather. He did all the wrong things and led people astray. But in his time of need, he turned to the Lord. If I were God, I probably would have been prone to say, well, you deserve what you've got. You should get what's coming to you. If I were God, I would have looked at his plea and been like, sure, now you think you need me. It's too late for you. But that's not the story of our God. He's not a God who's angry and waiting to smite any one of us. He is a God who is quick to show mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it. In no way, shape, or form did Manasseh deserve God's forgiveness. And yet when he cried out in distress, God heard him and turned and spared him. This is what I love about the story of Hezekiah and Manasseh. Is Hezekiah was given faith when he shouldn't have had any. A gift given by God to you and me as well. And in the same way, Manasseh was in every way evil and despicable. 
And yet God gave him grace as well. See, when it comes to our generational sin, it's important to recognize we are not bound to repeat the sins of our Father. But we will sin. And when we do, God will be just as faithful and gracious and merciful to us as He can be and will be to them. So whether we get it right like Hezekiah and we cry out in our distress and God answers us, whether we get it wrong like Manasseh, we still cry out in our distress. We place our trust in the Lord and He will always, always be faithful to restore what we have broken. As we finish this week and prepare for communion, I want to invite you, as you reflect on the sins of your fathers and the past you've walked through, I want to invite you to know that the plans God has for your future are different, full of grace and truth and mercy. And when you reflect on your own sin and see the ways in which you don't measure up, you're in good company of a long line of people throughout Scripture who did not measure up. And yet God was always gracious to them. May He be gracious to you today in all your times of distress. Will you pray with me? God, when Hezekiah was in distress and enemies were all around him, you sent the angel of the Lord, your son, to rescue him. God, in our sin, when we cry out to you, you have sent your son to rescue us. You have given us faith that we do not deserve to trust in your promises when all the world seems stacked against us. God, as we reflect on the sins of our fathers, help us to see that their sin does not define who we need to be. May we live in such a way that those who come after us, be them our children or our neighbors or our coworkers, that they would learn to follow after you through us, not as perfect people, but as sinners in need of grace. God, we pray today for those in need of healing. Like Hezekiah, would you pour out that healing upon Adam's dad, upon Corby's mom, upon Michael as his leg continues to bleed, upon Kylie and upon Ethan. God, we thank you for the healing you are bringing to Nicole, that she will be released from the hospital this week. We pray for your comfort for Penny and for Caleb at the death of Mike. Help them to grieve as those with hope. God, we pray for families. That every dad, mom, every parent in this place would, like Hezekiah, seek after you. Would we do what is right in your eyes? And unlike Hezekiah, we ask that our children may walk in your ways and not fall far from you, Lord. We thank you that you are gracious in all things. So Lord, may we trust in your promises and pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we continue our worship today, we continue by collecting an offering. In this place, we believe an offering is an opportunity to partner with God in the things that He is doing. And there's a really special opportunity before us that I'd like to let you know of. Uh, For those of you who've been around for the last few years, you've seen us do what we call practicing the way, where we take some time to look at practices of Jesus, things that he and his disciples did, things that would help us grow in our faith and learn to become like Jesus and do what he did. And this comes from an organization that's based out of the West Coast. They were in Oregon and now they're based in California. And they have invited me and one other from the church into something really special. Uh, something they've only personally asked a handful of churches to participate in, and it's a year-long program to help me grow in learning how to lead you well in following Jesus. It's something that I believe is going to be really fruitful and really positive, and because they've invited me and one other person from the church, uh, we're looking at possibly myself and Melissa Foster joining this year-long program that will require two retreats in person to learn the practices directly, and then kind of a monthly uh, commitment online to growing with other pastors from New Zealand and Canada and all across this country, uh, learning together how do we walk with Jesus in all of our unique contexts and cultures. We're really excited for this opportunity, and so today what I want to ask of you, this is something we weren't expecting or planning for at the start of the year. It came out of the blue and uh, as rather a surprise, this opportunity. If this is something you so far have seen the fruit in as we've done this, if it's something you think I would like to help see more fruit in that area, and you'd like to help support us to do this, between the travel for the two retreats and some of the other materials we need, it'll be about $5,000 total for the whole year for the two of us to do this. And because we did not initially budget for this, because we didn't plan for it, it would be something extra different than our normal expenses. So if this is something you'd like to learn more about and you'd like to possibly consider giving to support the two of us having this opportunity to turn around and bless you guys with what we learn and how we grow, um, you can do so in your offering by just putting a little note in the memo that it's specifically for that Practicing the Way cohort. If you uh, would like to ask questions before you give towards that, please do. Uh, We believe if this is something that's supposed to happen, God will provide it outside of our budget. And if it's not, that'll be okay. We'll continue to do the work that he's called us to do here in Knoxville without it. So as we give, you can give in person if you came prepared to give uh, with cash or check by placing that in the black boxes as you exit. If you filled out one of those physical connect cards with a way we can connect with you or be praying with you, you can place that there as well. And if you're somebody who prefers to give online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We give not to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Well, every week we welcome your questions, and I do my best to respond to them at the end of the service. So Tyler, what questions came in today? We have three. So... um... The first one is, and why did people worship him? 
why did the people worship like the idols and others? I think that's what they're saying. Okay. I think our natural tendency is to seek to worship something made in our own image, something we can relate to and connect with as if it's us. And so for all of history, I think we see um, idolatry is worshiping uh, something, anything other than God. There's a pastor from the 1500s who described what is an idol. It's whatever we fear, love, or trust the most uh, above God. So that idol could be our own reason. It could be our own science and understanding. It could be any number of things that we think will lead us and guide us. Maybe it's our success and our monetary uh, well-being, any number of things. So why do people worship idols? I think because we can understand idols and it's easy to lose sight of a God who's unfathomable. Cool. Uh, How does the time prior to Hezekiah apply to our country today? We as a country seem to be drifting off just like Judah and Israel. So is what we see happening today judgment or are we a nation that is getting ready to be judged? Whew, that is a big one. The short answer would be, I think it is dangerous to compare us to the nation of Israel because America has never been God's promised chosen land. And when we compare us to the nation of Israel, we can sometimes think that uh, therefore all of God's promises are one-to-one for us as a nation. Uh, All that he did and all that Jesus did happened before America and will continue to happen after this country. So that's not to say that, you know, we should just let it burn and it should all go to waste. I think we can be grateful for the country he's given to us. We can be honest and recognize the ways that it is sinful and imperfect. And we can also, I think, ask God to change it. Um, We can work to change it as we love our neighbor and as we care for others, as we seek to be Christ-like in our community. And yet, it's quite possible that this country is not redeemable. It's maybe possible that it's only going to get worse and things are going to get terrible. Who knows? So our hope is not based on the promise that this country is God's promise to us, that this nation needs to follow God. We trust in God, and if the people around us and the world around us does not follow after Him and just gets worse, that only actually makes our light shine brighter. Because where darkness increases, light shines all the more. So we can live faithfully, and we can pray earnestly, and we can work hard at making this nation a better place. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. We just keep loving our neighbor, and God will work the rest out. All right? When do we know what God has in store for, for you? Oh, on, I misread this. When do you know what God has in store for you? How do we know when we know what he wants us to do? How do you know God's will? Ultimately, it says that his will is that all people would be saved. So his will is that we learn to walk with him and trust in his promises. So as you are trusting in God and then discerning, okay, now what? Um, Sometimes you can do so through scripture. But unfortunately, there's a lot of your life that scripture says nothing about. Like, I don't know if you know this, it says nothing about what rate you should get on your mortgage. Doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about what part of town you should live in or what job you should have or who you should marry, though it does say a whole lot about how you live in that neighborhood or how you live as a husband or a wife. And and so I think when it comes to God's will, we look first at Scripture saying, God, in general, who are you? 
And if you were me, how would you have me live? What would you do in my place? And then we look to other people and we ask for wisdom. And so we consult somebody who knows a little bit more about buying a home and say, how do you think I go about this process? Or we consult somebody who knows a little bit more about finding if this job path is the right choice or not. And we say, will you give me wisdom and guidance? It says throughout scripture that there's great blessing in wise counsel. So seek wise counsel. And then finally, when it comes to knowing God's will for you, if you've sought his word and you've sought wise counsel and you're still left up in the air, just make a decision and move forward. I promise you, if it's the wrong decision, God will make it clear. And it's never too late to come back to the right decision. Like, he will always lead you and guide you into the path he's wanting you to go. It says his word is a lamp unto our feet. It doesn't promise we will know 10 years in advance, but he'll lead us and guide us right now. So if you don't know what his will is for you, if you're wrestling with something really big and you've sought God's word and don't have answers, um, I would love to sit down and have coffee and maybe listen to some of what you're wrestling through and, and help guide you in that process. It would be a great joy. I know Adam would as well when time allows, and there are many in this church who would gladly seek to be wise counsel for you in this time. So ask. Any other questions? That was it. That was it. All right. Well, then as you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Next week, I will be on vacation with my family and will not be here. So next week, you get to bring all the really, really, really hard questions because Vicar Adam's going to be preaching and he would love to answer them next week, all right? So you got a whole week to think about those. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.